We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And away we go. Episode 103 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, July 19th, 2021. I am back from my vacation week with vacation in quotation marks. We were in Fenwick Island, Delaware, a coastal town between Ocean City and Bethany Beach. Fenwick Island is like the forgotten number four of the big four in terms of the Maryland slash Delaware beaches. Everyone knows Ocean City, Bethany, and Rehoboth, but people sleep on Fenwick Island. Ocean City, Bethany, and Rehoboth are like Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, and Matt Ioannidis. Fenwick Island is like Tim Settle. Don't sleep on Tim Settle. He can play. Uh, Vacation when you have a son who will turn four next month and a daughter who will turn one next month isn't really a vacation. I know many of you listening already know this. You haven't lived, though, until you tell your son to keep his sandals on while walking on hot sand. He still takes the sandals off because he never listens to you. And then like five seconds later, he's screaming in agony and you have to sprint back toward him like Usain Bolt to pick him up before he suffers third-degree burns. That, my friends, is the vacation. And yes, I put vacation in quotation marks. But it was nice to be in someplace different. It was nice to get some sun. And it was nice to still be able to do 
three shows last week. I did find enough pillows and blankets in the beach house to construct a makeshift studio up to the high standards of the Al Galdi podcast. So this week is a normal week, five shows, Monday through Friday, a new show out each weekday by 5 a.m. And this past weekend was a whopper. The Nationals, my my goodness, the Nationals, an unreal three days for them, Friday through Sunday, including a game on Saturday night that got suspended due to gunfire outside of Nationals Park. Just incredible. Thankfully, nobody was killed, but what a scene that was. There were so many other things, too, over the last few days. You had on Friday, Starling Castro being placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball for a domestic violence allegation. We on Friday also had the controversial return of F.P. Santangelo, to the Madison broadcast booth. And oh yeah, we had the baseball, including a 24-8 loss for the Nats on Friday night, and then a crazy 8-7 walk-off win for the Nats to avoid a three-game sweep on Sunday afternoon. This Nats series against the San Diego Padres ended up being something you can never forget if you're a Nats fan. Uh, Many of the reasons, unfortunately, bad reasons, but there were some good things too. I could do a whole show on the Nats. I won't, uh, but there is a ton to unpack. We'll do that next segment. The Wizards, they have a new head coach. The search is over. Wes Unsell Jr. is the man. I'm happy about this. He's the guy who I wanted. I'll explain why hiring Wes is a good thing. And no, the reasons have little, if anything, to do with his last name. I have plenty for you on the Washington football team on this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. So we on Friday had multiple reports that Washington still had a COVID-19 vaccination rate of less than 50%. The same Washington team that did such a good job with the COVID-19 pandemic in the 2020 season. The same Washington team with a head coach in Ron Rivera who last year dealt with squamous cell carcinoma. Why does Washington's COVID-19 vaccination rate for players remain so low? What ultimately does this mean? I want to get into those things and more coming up in just a bit. Also, one week from Tuesday, we have the start of Washington football team training camp. And so this week on the show, there is a particular urgency with our position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into camp. I'm doing one position group each show. We're talking linebackers later in this show. Will John Bostic be cut? I'll talk about that and much more. And I'll discuss the Orioles late in the program as incredibly, miraculously, Matt Harvey pitched a gem on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, you heard that right. That's not a mistake that I forgot to edit out. Matt Harvey pitched a gem on Sunday afternoon. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Andy in Indy, writes Andy. I finally had to write in on your topic of it not being a vacation when traveling with your young kids. I am in a similar boat having a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and we just two weeks ago took our own first real trip as a family of four, the one-year-old having been born just a couple of months before COVID, pretty much removed all plans for a year. We took the week off to go to my wife's family reunion postponed from 2020, and I can tell you I've never been more exhausted than I was spending a week trying to corral those two in unfamiliar environments, all with grandparents, aunts, and uncles egging them on. Vacation with them at this age is like having them home from daycare for a week, except with the added complexity of staying somewhere that isn't safely set up for the kids and has a million new dangerous or annoying things for them to get into. All that is to say, I feel 
your pain. Thank you, Andy and Indy. Uh, I feel your pain as well. We are brothers in arms in the struggle. You know, they say that misery loves company. And uh, if we can all be miserable together, I, th- I think that helps the misery uh, just a little bit. Well, when you're at the beach, you got to apply your suntan lotion, right? You don't want to get done dirty by the sun. We know what that can lead to. Heck, earlier this segment, right? You heard me mention Ron Rivera's battle with squamous cell carcinoma last year. Not that that was caused by exposure to the sun, but you get the idea. The sun can lead to skin cancer. Skin cancer obviously is serious and a real problem. It happens to be, though, an area of expertise for one of the great friends of the Al Galdi podcast, Dr. George Verghese. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge called superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. Well, what a last few days for the Nationals. An unforgettable last few days, mostly for bad reasons, although the series did end up in a nice way. So the Nats ultimately lost two of three games to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park. A 24-8 loss on Friday night. Yes, 24-8 was the final. Justin Herbert had three touchdown passes. You then had a 10-4 gunshots suspended loss that started on Saturday night and ended on Sunday afternoon. And then you had an 8-7 walk-off win on Sunday afternoon. A wild and crazy series over the course of a wild and crazy three-day stretch. The Nats now are 43-49, and six games behind the National League East leading New York Mets, who won at the Pittsburgh Pirates 7-6 on Sunday afternoon but who over the weekend put both ace Jacob deGrom and shortstop Francisco Lindor on the 10-day injured list. The Mets are very vulnerable. The Nats have a real opportunity here to make the run. Look, at this point, if the Nats are going to make the postseason, it's going to have to be as the division winner in the National League East. The way things look right now, it just looks so far-fetched, the idea of the Nats getting one of the two wildcard spots in the NL. But winning this division, to me, remains very much in play, even with the Nats having this record of 43-49, and even with the Nats having one of the worst run differentials in the NL at minus 36. But yeah, man, this Nats-Padres series, incredible for all that went on during it. So you start 
with the gunshots. That 10-4 loss to the Padres at Nats Park started on Saturday night, ended on Sunday afternoon. The game suspended after five and a half innings with the Nats trailing 8-4 on Saturday night due to gunfire that took place outside of the third base gate at Nationals Park. More on that situation in just a few moments. We also had the chaos, though, that was Friday. That day featured Nats third baseman Starling Castro being placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball under the joint MLB-MLBPA domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy. This was done due to a domestic violence allegation against Castro. We on Friday had the return of F.P. Santangelo as Masson's in-game analyst for telecast of Nats games off him having been out for more than two months due to alleged sexual misconduct. And we on Friday night had the Nats losing to the Padres 24-8. The Nats 24 runs allowed, the most runs given up by the Nats in a game since the team came to D.C. beginning with the 2005 season. And then we had what we had on Sunday afternoon. The Nats snapping a six-game losing streak with an 8-7 walk-off win over the Padres at Nationals Park. The Nats winning that game despite blowing a 4-0 third-inning lead. The Nats winning that game thanks to overcoming a 6-4 eighth-inning deficit. So with the gunfire on Saturday night, the gunfire involved a series of gunshots fired on the 1500 block of South Capitol Street Southwest. Police said that people in two cars exchanged gunfire. Police said that there were three victims. One victim was a woman attending the game. I cannot imagine what that must have been like for her. The other two victims were men involved in the gunfire. Thank God nobody was killed. Uh, We're not sure about the extents of the injuries. But you had absolute chaos, absolute pandemonium at Nationals Park there on Saturday night. You heard the gunfire if you were at the game. If you go back and rewatch the game as the mass and telecast is going to break in the middle of the sixth inning, you can hear the gunshots. Now, in a moment, as you're watching the game, you're not thinking, oh, golly gee, those are gunshots, right? Like, I mean, you're not, first of all, listening for gunshots, but second of all, you know, it maybe it's like someone banging a drum. Like, who the heck knows? Again, you're not thinking gunshots, but sure enough, you can hear the gunshots as Masson is going to break. And, you know, people didn't know what to do. You had people sprinting for the exits. The players stormed off the field. You at one point had fans going onto the field trying to get into the dugouts. There are all kinds of tales of heroism in all of this. Uh, the Padres' Manny Machado, the former Oriole, has been given a lot of credit for welcoming fans into the Padres' dugout. Davey Martinez is said to have welcomed fans who made their way from their seats to the field and then the Nats' dugout into his office. And how about Davey during his pregame press conference on Sunday morning? Davey got emotional, and we're used to this. Davey does get emotional. But, you know, Davey Martinez, to me, whatever you ever want to say about Davey as a manager, and, you know, I have my nits to pick, but overall, I think Davey's a very good manager. Uh, He certified himself with what he did in October 2019. He put on a managerial clinic that postseason in leading the Nets to the World Series championship. But Davey really does come off like a good person, okay? And I'm not big on trying to assess who is good and who is not good in the world of sports in terms of people's characters because we can get fooled very easily. But Davey Martinez very much comes off like a good and genuine person. And I just want to play this for you. This was Davey getting emotional during his pregame press conference on Sunday morning. He got asked about 
Well, geez, off gunshots being fired outside of Nationals Park during a game, should fans feel safe going to a game at Nats Park? Here's what Davey had to say. I love this city. You know, it's, the city's my home. It can get crazy. We all know that. Um, and we all want to feel safe. I can tell you that inside this ballpark, I feel safer than ever. I really do. Uh, we care about each other. Uh, we, don't, we don't want anybody getting hurt. So, like I said, for me, yesterday, I try to protect as many, many people as possible. Yeah, I mean, very moving words by Davey Martinez. Just nuts that something like this happens. I mean, we know that things like this happen in our world, but, you know, during a baseball game, it's like the last thing that you ever think about. And yet, in fact, it went down there on Saturday night. You know, to what Davey said about it can get crazy, we all know that. You do have to say the gunfire outside of Nationals Park is not the first time that something terrible has happened near Nationals Park. Now, look, the area around Nationals Park has improved greatly over the last decade or so. I want to make that crystal clear. But there are things that have happened here lately. Uh, There was a story a few months ago that actually got a lot of attention. A teenage girl killed a 66-year-old Uber Eats driver named Mohammed Anwar near Nationals Park. This was back in March. Uh, This happened in a botched carjacking that featured the man, Anwar, hanging onto the car as the carjackers accelerated into a curb and flipped the car, killing Anwar. Just a horrible situation. We also know that Washington, D.C. has had an issue over the last year plus now in terms of gun violence, um, I, look, I'm not an expert on this stuff, okay? So I'm not here to do a whole spiel on why this is happening, but I just know that this is happening. Uh, and you can see this data by going to the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department's official site, mpdc.dc.gov. Washington, D.C.'s number of homicides from 2019 to 2020 increased by 19%, 19% leap. And the number of homicides in D.C. as of July 16th of this year at the exact same level as at the same time in 2020. So this gun violence that was on display on Saturday night outside of Nationals Park, I'd love to say, look, this never happens in our city. This was just a rare thing. And certainly this is not like a common thing that happens outside of Nationals Park. I'm not trying to suggest that, but D.C. does have an issue right now. And, you know, I've lived in this area my whole life. I love Washington, D.C. I hate to see this stuff that homicides have shot up in recent years. And again, I don't know why I'm not an expert on these things. I'm sure many of you listening live in D.C., have a much better grasp on what's going on in the nation's capital than I do. I don't live in D.C. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. But, you know, I just thought about this stuff with what went down at Nationals Park on Saturday night as, you know, we shouldn't be naive to this. Our city has a problem here over the last year plus. And like I said, I don't know exactly why. I think people have their theories, but I'm not here to tell you why. I'm not an expert. I certainly don't have a solution for you. But to me, it's sad that this is a thing. And we know that this is a thing in some of our other major cities in this country. But anyway, uh, thankfully, nobody got killed And hopefully something like this never, ever, ever happens again. Uh, Also, over the last few days, right, was this Starling Castro situation. I mean, if not for the gunshots on Saturday night, 
the Castro item really is the lead item out of the weekend here when it comes to the Nats. So the Nats on Friday announced that Starling Castro had been placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball under the joint MLB, MLBPA domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy. This has to do with a domestic violence allegation. Now, per MLB's policy, Castro's initial period of administrative leave can last up to seven days, although the period can also be extended. And we've seen the period extended when it comes to the situation right now for Los Angeles Dodgers starting pitcher Trevor Bauer. Castro does get paid while he's on administrative leave. So while he's not playing, he is getting paid. Now, what stands out as much as anything with all of this is the way Davey spoke about the Castro situation. So this was on Friday in a pregame press conference, during which Davey came out forcefully against domestic violence. Okay, Davey obviously should do that. We all should do that. Uh, But Davey did not pledge support to Castro. This wasn't one of these deals where Davey was like, look, we're totally against domestic violence, but I know Starling Castro. I know what kind of a guy he is. Or this wasn't even, hey, when Starling Castro is back, you know, we've got his back 100%. No, Davey said that he had nothing to say to Starling Castro until the process is complete. You almost never hear stuff like that in pro sports when it comes to something like domestic violence. You heard it from Davey on Friday. Davey said that he did not become aware of the allegation against Castro until this past Thursday night. Davey also said that Castro going on administrative leave is not related to Castro's stint on the restricted list. So you may remember this. Starling Castro last month had kind of a mysterious deal in which he was on the restricted list, but only for a few days, June 16th to June 18th. And Davey on June 16th in a pregame press conference said that Castro had some, quote, family matters, end quote, to which he needed to attend. Now, you know, you look at all this, it's hard to believe that Castro going on that restricted list back in June has nothing to do with him now being on administrative leave. But I guess it is possible that one thing has nothing to do with the other. Maybe these are two totally separate ordeals. But yeah, there was like this air of mystery, this air of secrecy when Castro went on the restricted list for just a few days back in June. Now he's on administrative leave for this domestic violence allegation. I would also bring this up too, and this may have nothing to do with anything, but it's hard to ignore something like this. January 2012, we learned that Starling Castro, then with the Chicago Cubs, had been accused of sexual assault in 2011. Now, no charges were ever filed, but you know, you do wonder about something like that. The timing of Castro going on administrative leave really is remarkable. First of all, Castro turned his season around. We spent so much time talking about how impotent Starling Castro was as a batter, and yet Starling Castro, beginning with games on June 8th, through the end of the pre-All-Star break portion of the season, so that was on July 11th, raised his OPS for the season by 100 points. You could argue going into the All-Star break, no Nationals hitter was hotter than Starling Castro. He raised his OPS for the season from 608 to 708 from, again, the start of games on June 8th through games on July 11th. So as his season now catches fire, Castro's season may in fact be done. The other thing is this, and this is incredible to me, the same day, the same day on which Castro is placed on administrative leave, we have the return of F.P. Santangelo as the in-game analyst 
for Masson's telecast of Nats games. So the FP situation, I'm sure many of you listening are familiar with this, but back on May 8th, we had multiple reports that FP had been accused of sexual misconduct and that that was why he had been on and off as serving as a color commentator for telecast for Nats games over the previous week. If you remember, it was bizarre. He was not on the Masson telecast for any of three games in a Nats three-game sweep of the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park from April 30th through May 2nd. Then FP was back on the Masson telecast for the first two games of the Nats three-game sweep to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on May 4th and May 5th. But then he wasn't on the MLB Network YouTube telecast of the Nats 3-2 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park on May 6th when he was supposed to be on that game. FP was on the Masson telecast of an 11-4 win at the New York Yankees on May 7th. But then he wasn't on the Masson telecast of a 4-3 11-inning loss at the Yankees on May 8th. Now, FP issued a statement to The Athletic uh, denying what he was accused of. An investigation conducted by Masson, which requested and received help from MLB, was inconclusive, according to MLB insider Chelsea Janes of the Washington Post in an article that came out on Friday. Masson on Friday night put out a statement saying, quote, the commissioner's office and Masson have reviewed the anonymous claim made against FP Santangelo. MLB and Masson have found no evidence that Mr. Santangelo violated the terms of his contractor agreement, league or network regulations, nor is there more evidence currently available to us to collect, end quote. And when it comes to the FP Santangelo situation, I'll say what I will say about the Starling Castro situation. And that is this. A, we have no idea what the truth is. I am not going to pretend to know what the truth is. B, all you can ever hope for in these situations is that the outcome ultimately reflects the reality. I.e., now that FP is back, I sure hope that he's not guilty of what he was accused of. And, you know, just because you are accused of something doesn't make you guilty of that something. We have seen this many times over the years, right? Especially in sports. I mean, the Duke lacrosse scenario is the all-timer in terms of everyone rushing to judgment everyone assuming people are guilty, and then everyone looking foolish because those people weren't guilty. So you can't just assume guilt when someone gets accused of something. At the same time, we know enough about sexual misconduct and domestic violence to know that so many real situations go unreported. You know, these are underreported crimes. And so all allegations have to be taken seriously. But to me, it's just always so maddening from a standpoint of, We don't know, okay? And we'll probably never know. And all you can hope for is that the outcome reflects the reality and that justice is ultimately served in the outcome. But I think it says a lot that this MLB Masson investigation into FP was inconclusive. Like, he's not exonerated. But at the same time, you can't just say, well, he should never work again because what if it isn't true? You know, you just don't know with something like that. And I'd say the same thing about Starling Castro. Now, I think the way Davey talked about Castro is potentially telling. But again, you can't just assume that Starling Castro is guilty. As for the actual baseball that was played, Juan Soto 
big series for him. Great to see this. So Juan Soto was the Nats starting right fielder and number three batter in all three games. And how about the job by Juan on Sunday afternoon? So he comes into this series, right, having had that great performance in the home run derby last Monday night. And the joke was, although I don't think it's so much a joke when it comes to Soto himself, hey, maybe the home run derby performance will fix my swing. I.e., the one thing that Soto hasn't done well this season is hit for power because he hasn't elevated baseballs. He's hit baseballs hard. He just hasn't hit them with good launch angles. Well, I don't know if this is psychological or if this is actual, but whatever the case, it may well be that Soto partaking in the home run derby and doing so well in the home run derby has fixed his swing. Because Juan Soto, over these three games against the Padres, hit three home runs. No home run was bigger than the one he hit on Sunday afternoon. Juan Soto smashing a one-out full count go-ahead opposite field homer to left field in a three-run Nationals eighth inning for a 7-6 Nats lead. Soto hit the homer despite having been down in the count at one point, one, two. Now, he benefited from a borderline strike that got called as ball three. Uh, But whatever, man. Great piece of hitting by Soto. The homer only went a projected 362 feet per stat cast. But that doesn't matter. A homer is a homer that was a huge homer by Soto. He also, in the game, had a two-out, five-pitch walk in the bottom of the first a one-out first pitch opposite field double to left field in the Nats four-run third, and a one-out first pitch single in the bottom of the sixth inning. Soto was not good in game two of this series, 0 for 4 with a walk and three strikeouts, and he committed a run-scoring throwing error in the Padres' two-run seventh. But Soto in the 24-8 loss on Friday night, that's still ridiculous having to say that a 24-8 loss He was a monster in that game. This was like the one positive for the Nats on Friday night. Juan Soto, four for five with two homers, two singles, and four RBI. Did the home run derby fix Juan Soto in terms of hitting for home runs? Well, I can tell you this. If you need to fix your situation when it comes to trying to sell your home, ain't nobody better to contact than John Grandlin of Real Broker. John Grandlin of Real Broker, he's like the Walt Riniak of real estate agents in the area. Who's Walt Riniak? He's like one of the great hitting coaches in baseball history. But anyway, if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandlin, aka John G, and ask him about his commission flex. Don't just get sucked into paying whatever some real estate agent tells you you need to pay in terms of commission. Go with John Grandlin, who offers commission flex. I tell it to you all the time. Ron Rivera has position flex. John Grandlin has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G has commission flex. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? Enough with the cookie cutter commissions. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do 
so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Granlin to sell your home. Call John G. now. The phone number, 703-537-6747. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure that you ask him what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, the commission flex. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. John Granlin's a great guy, easy to talk to, big Nationals fan, big Washington football team fan, very good sense of humor as well. You can also check John Granlin out online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Granlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And always remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, just like position flex. Well, I've said that the Nats lack guys who offer position flex. The Nats, though, do not lack veteran players. And among those veteran players is a guy who came through big time in the 8-7 walk-off win over the Padres at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Alcides Escobar, he remains the Nats' everyday second baseman at number one batter, and he had two big hits in this win on Sunday afternoon. Escobar, a one-out walk-off single off Padres closer and ex-Nat Mark Melanson on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the ninth, and that was a well-struck baseball out to center field. And Escobar homered. The guy who, like, never homers, homered. Escobar, a one-out solo homer in the Nationals' three-run eighth inning. His first homer as a Nat, the homer going up projected 393 feet for StatCast. He also drew a leadoff four-pitch walk in the bottom of the sixth inning. Escobar was the Nats' starting second baseman and number one batter in all three games in the series. He, in the series, went five for 15 with a homer, four singles, and a walk. Now, look, he's not putting up, you know, all-time numbers here. I'm not trying to suggest that. But given that this guy had not played in the majors since 2018, given that this guy was acquired by the Nats from the Kansas City Royals for cash considerations just a few weeks ago. Alcides Escobar has done a tremendous job, all things considered. 59 plate appearances with the Nats. He has a batting average of 296. He has an on-base percentage of 333. He has a slugging percentage of 444. I mean, no, those are not Shohei Otani numbers, but that's not the point. This guy shouldn't even be playing in the majors, and yet he's playing every day for the Nats. He's leading off, and he's doing a nice job, and he had two huge hits in this win on Sunday. Josh Harrison had a big series for the Nats. So he was the Nats starting third baseman at number five batter in the win on Sunday afternoon. Harrison, three for five with two doubles and a single. He had a two-out RBI double to the left center field gap in the Nats' four-run third. He had a first-pitch single in the bottom of the fifth. Now, he did get doubled off at second base on a double play with no outs. The base is loaded, and the Nats leading 4-3. This was bad base running by Josh. He veered too far away from second base on a Gerardo Parra liner that ended up being caught by the Padres' second baseman, Jake Cronenworth. But Harrison also had a two-out full-count double in the bottom of the eighth inning. He was an at starting left fielder and number five batter in games one and two in the series. And Harrison in the 24-8 loss to the Padres at Nationals Park on Friday night. A leadoff triple in the Nats' one-run fourth. Also had a one-out five-pitch walk in the Nats' four-run sixth. 
and Harrison as a starting left fielder and number five batter in the 10-4 game that started on Saturday night, ended on Sunday afternoon, three for four with a double and two singles. Uh, Josh Harrison, really nice job in this series. And Josh Harrison, look, he's been a little up and down here, but overall, Harrison on the season, on base percentage of 358. I mean, you take that in a heartbeat. Josh Harrison, really good job against the Padres over the last three games. The Nats used Jordy Mercer and Josh Harrison at third base in the series. Actually, it was Mercer who was the Nats starting third baseman in games one and two of the series. So Starling Castro out, who's going to man third base for you now? Well, it's probably going to be third baseman by committee, but we did see a good bit of Jordy Mercer. Nats on Friday reinstated Mercer from the 10-day injured list. He'd been on that since July 2nd, retroactive to July 1st with a strained right quadriceps. And Mercer actually got on base three times in that 24-8 loss on Friday night, two for three with a double, a single, and a walk. The Nats catching situation does remain a mess. So Jan Gomes is still on the 10-day injured list with an oblique strain. Alex Avila is still on the 10-day IL with bilateral calf strains. The Nats on Friday announced having agreed on a major league contract with free agent catcher Rene Rivera, for whom this season is his age 37 season. And yet another indictment of the state of the Nats farm system, the Nats have to sign a catcher in his age 37 season, as opposed to, say, going with guys in the system. Uh, Rene Rivera was taken by the Seattle Mariners in the second round of the 2001 MLB draft. The Nats are his 10th major league team, and he was the Nats starting catcher in games one and two in the series. The Nats on Friday option catcher Jackson Reitz to AAA Rochester of having selected his contract from Rochester on July 10th. The Nats do still have Tres Barrera. He was the Nats starting catcher in the win on Sunday. So with these catchers, okay, I mean, this is where you're at right now. Rene Rivera and Tres Barrera are the two guys who you're going with. And look, Barrera did a nice job offensively on Sunday. I do want to give him credit. Two for four with a walk. He had a two-out first-pitch RBI single in the Nats' four-run third. He had a two-out intentional walk in the bottom of the fifth, and he had a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch in that Nats' one-run ninth inning. So I want to give Tres Pereira credit for those things, because that was good. But defensively, the Nats have been a mess at catcher. So first of all, the Nats allowed three uncontested stolen bases in the Padres' one-run ninth inning of Brad Hand on Sunday. Now, I don't know if this is directly attributable to Barrera being the catcher. Uh, A lot of this is strategic. Davey Martinez just allows this. But I could not stand the Nats doing this, just giving away bases to the Padres. The Padres had a pinch runner in Jorge Mateo. He comes into the game with one out in that ninth inning. The Nats are nursing a 7-6 lead. And what ends up happening? Mateo steals second base, uncontested, no throw, then steals third base, uncontested, no throw. Now, Davey, during his postgame press conference, talked about how in situations like that, he doesn't like to have his reliever have to worry about the runner on the base pass. Uh, Yeah, I think he should worry about the runner on the base pass. The Nats were nursing a one-run lead. The guy went from first to third and ended up scoring on a Trent Grisham two-out single on a one-two pitch. Like, yeah, you want your closer to be focused on the batter, but you also want your closer to be able to, I don't know, hold runners onto their bases, or at the very least, you want your defense to be able to hold runners onto the bases. The last thing you want to be doing is gifting bases, and you gifted 180 feet there when the Padres only needed one run, and sure enough, what happened, the Padres ended up getting 
that one run. I could not stand that. Again, that seems to be more of a strategic thing than an indictment of Barrera. Although I do wonder if Jan Gomes or Alex Avila is catching, do the Nats still employ that strategy? And then with Rene Rivera, uh, Rivera had some real defensive problems in this series. That 24-8 loss on Friday night, Rivera in a three-run Padres first committed a one-out throwing error and through to second when he wasn't supposed to on a two-out double steal that included Tommy Pham stealing home. And then in this 10-4 loss in game two, Rivera in the top of the fourth did throw out Pham on an attempted steal of second base, but Rivera also committed a catcher's interference, resulting in Jake Cronenworth reaching first base with one out. So the Nats still have a tough go of it in terms of injuries, right? No Jan Gomes, no Alex Avila, no Kyle Schwarber. Now, when it comes to starting pitching, Max Scherzer was the Nats starting pitcher in this 8-7 win over the Padres at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. And, you know, Max was just so-so to me, especially if you're judging him through the prism of Max Scherzer standards. Four runs in seven innings. I mean, the way things have been going for Nat starters lately, four runs in seven innings is like a perfect game, okay? But for Max Scherzer, four runs in seven innings isn't that good. He only gave up four hits, but two of the four hits were homers, and they were big homers. The other two hits were singles. He did issue three walks. He did have eight strikeouts. I mean, it's not like he was a mess. He struck out the side in a perfect top of the first inning, but he tossed a scoreless top of the second, despite issuing back-to-back two-out walks of Eric Hosmer and Jerickson Profar. Max allowed three runs in the top of the fourth on a one-out single by Manny Machado on a one-two pitch, a one-out first-pitch single by Tommy Pham, and then a one-out three-run homer by Eric Hosmer to right center field. And that was some shot by Hosmer, projected 410 feet for StatCast. Max did toss a scoreless top of the fifth, but in that inning, he issued a one-out four-pitch walk of Trent Grisham, and Max gave up a run in the top of the seventh on a leadoff homer by Jerickson Profar. Now, this is the problem. The Nats' rotation lately has been really bad. This was a problem going into the All-Star break. This is a problem that very much continued in this series. You look at what the other two starting pitchers for the Nats in this series did. It was unacceptable. Patrick Corbin in the 10-4 loss in game two. Bad, really bad. Again, six runs in five into third innings. He gave up 10 hits, three doubles, and seven singles. He issued four walks, three of which were leadoff walks. He recorded just three strikeouts. Corbin isn't good. He hasn't been good since the 2019 World Series. And I've talked about this. I got so annoyed with how everyone just wanted to write off Patrick Corbin's struggles in the 2020 season to the pandemic. I heard that so many times this past offseason, even early this season. Well, you know, pandemic. Well, you know, COVID-19. Well, you know, shortened season last year. He was really bad last year. He's been even worse so far this year. And interestingly, ain't nobody bringing up the pandemic anymore as an excuse here. Patrick Corbin has fallen off a cliff. And I still believe that he's better than this. I still have a hard time believing that the Patrick Corbin who we saw in 2019 is never going to be seen again. But with each passing start in which he just isn't good, you do have to wonder if we're ever going to see the Patrick Corbin who we saw in 2019 again. And I'm not talking about like, does he have a good start here or there? I'm talking about Does he have good seasons moving forward? You know, does he have another season moving forward in which the ERA is under four? Because here's where the ERA is at right now for this season. 566, okay? That's terrible. A 566 ERA for Patrick Corbin over 18 starts this season. His whip on the year is at 147. This is year three 
of a six-year, $140 million contract, and you continue to get complete uncertainty and instability with Patrick Corbin in terms of the performance. Now, he does post. He does make his starts. He's been durable. I'll at least credit him for that. But he has been nothing close to the guy he's paid to be. Speaking of durability, we got a Steven Strasburg update over the weekend. This was another big thing that happened over the last few days. And this has basically been buried by everything else. But Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference on Saturday revealed that Steven Strasburg suffered a setback in his comeback from a neck strain. Strasburg felt discomfort in his neck after throwing a simulated game at Oracle Park in San Francisco on July 9th. Uh, The Nats have had Strasburg on the 10-day injured list with an X-drain since June 2nd. This is his second 10-day IL stint this season. He was previously on the 10-day IL from April 18th retroactive to April 15th to May 21st with right shoulder inflammation. And now in his comeback from the next drain, he felt discomfort in his neck after throwing a simulated game. Now, the word is that this isn't like, you know, something that's just going to totally shut him down for the rest of the year, but it's a hiccup. It's a speed bump. And I do wonder if we see Steven Strasburg pitch again at the major league level this season. Steven Strasburg has made five starts this season of having made two starts last season. This is his age 32 season. This is just, I mean, I can't even say this. This is just the second season of a seven-year, $245 million contract to which he was re-signed in December 2019. I mean, you tell me, objectively speaking, even if you're a huge Nats fan, and I know so many of you are, does that not come off like one of the worst contracts in sports right now? Seven years, $245 million for Steven Strasburg, who has totaled seven starts over the last two years and who now has suffered a setback in his comeback from his latest injury, which is a neck strain. Oh, by the way, game one of this series against the Padres, Eric Fetty got shellacked. The 24-8 loss to the Pods at Nationals Park on Friday night. Fetty was a complete mess. Six runs in one and a third innings. He gave up three singles. He issued four walks. He had just one strikeout. He couldn't throw a strike. I mean, it was was painful watching this. Eric Fetty threw 57 pitches. He threw just 29 strikes versus 20 eight balls. He got pulled from the game with the bases loaded and one out in the top of the second inning. You know, this was Fetty's third start since being reinstated from the 10-day injured list, which he was on with a left oblique strain. He's not been good, truly, in any of his three starts. 7-4 loss at the San Diego Padres on July 6th, six runs in four and a third innings. 3-1 loss at the San Francisco Giants on July 11th, three runs in five innings. And then this 24-8 loss to the Padres at Nationals Park on Friday night, sixth runs in one and a third innings. And so, yes, this ended up being another series in which the Nationals bullpen was utilized quite a bit, and the bullpen was not good in this series. You know, I mentioned Brad Hand 
and some of what happened with him on Sunday afternoon. Hand gave up the game-tying run in the bottom of the ninth inning, during which he gave up a two-out game-tying RBI single to Trent Grisham on a 1-2 pitch and issued three walks, one of which was intentional. But prior to that, yet Daniel Hudson giving up two runs, one earned, in the top of the eighth. Now, that eighth inning did include a fielding error by Jordy Mercer at third base, but that inning also included a one-out two-run homer by Manny Machado. So the Nats in this game on Sunday, which, yes, does end up being a win, but you use your top two relievers in Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand, neither of whom has pitched much lately, so maybe rust was a factor, but Hudson and Hand combined to allow three runs, two earned, in two innings. The 10-4 loss in game two, four Nats relievers combined to allow four runs, three earned, and three and two-thirds innings. Kyle Finnegan struggled in the Saturday night portion of the game. Sam Clay struggled in the Sunday afternoon portion of the game. And then in the nightmare that was the 24-8 loss on Friday night, six Nats relievers combined to allow 18 runs, 15 earned in seven and two-thirds innings. And this really was something else because Davey Martinez in this game used six relievers. Not a single guy was good. I mean, you don't expect all six to be good, but you expect at least a few of the six to be good. All six were bad to varying extents. Andres Machado, Paolo Espino, Sam Clay, Wander Suero, Ryan Harper, and Jeffrey Rodriguez. My two favorite things from all of this, my guy, Paolo Espino, comes into the game with the bases loaded two outs and the Nats trailing 6-3 in the top of the second and gives up a two-out grand slam to the first battery faces, Will Myers, on a bomb to left field for a 10-3 Padres lead. And then Wander Suero, who was a special kind of awful. He got charged with six runs, three earned, in one-third of an inning. He threw 12 strikes versus 16 balls. Suero can be good. Suero can be bad. You know, it's like good Rex Grossman, bad Rex Grossman. There's good Wander Suero. There's bad Wander Suero. And this quite clearly was bad Wander Suero on display. Six-run Padre six. Suero gave up a leadoff homer to Tommy Pham, gave up a two-run homer to Will Myers, issued two walks. I mean, just could not throw a strike, could not make a quality pitch to save his life, as was the case with Eric Fetty. Uh, A few more observations from the Nats losing two or three games to the Padres at Nationals Park. Trey Turner did have a solid series. I did want to acknowledge that. Trey was the Nats starting shortstop and number two batter in all three games in the series. He went three for 10 with a double, two singles, two walks, and a stolen base. The Nats in the series only got modest production from first base, but did get a big homer from Ryan Zimmerman. So Zimmerman was the starting first baseman and cleanup batter and that 10-4 loss in game two. This was his first start for the Nets in nine games. He went one for four with a three-run homer and a walk. Uh, Zimmerman blasted a three-run homer to dead center field in the bottom of the third of the Padres starter, Blake Snell, to cut the Nats' deficit to 5-4. The homer was some shot by Zimmer, projected 419 feet per stat cast. And speaking of big homers, Gerardo Porra came off the bench for Victor Robles in that 24-8 loss on Friday night and hit a homer. Porra, a two-out, full-count, three-run homer in a Nats four-run sixth to cut the deficit to 19-8. Robles actually had to leave that game on Friday night. He got pulled from the game due to heat-related dizziness with the bases loaded two outs in the top of the second while Paolo Espino was throwing his warm-up pitches. But like I said, 
This was some three-day stretch for the Nats. Hopefully, many of the things that took place never take place again, i.e. the gunfire outside of Nationals Park, i.e. Starling Castro being accused of domestic violence, i.e. a 24-8 loss. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series against the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park as finally, mercifully, the Nats schedule softens. The Nats schedule was brutal over the final few weeks going into the All-Star break. The post-All-Star break portion of the season began with this series against the Padres, who, by the way, are a really good team. I mean, it's incredible. The National League West is loaded with the three best teams in the National League, in my opinion. The San Francisco Giants, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the San Diego Padres. The Padres are third in the National League West, despite having a record of 55-41, and 41, despite having a run differential of plus 96. But yes, next up for the Nats are the lowly Miami Marlins, who are 40-53 and 53 on the season, although... The Marlins have the second best run differential in the National League East at plus 16. The Nats' run differential is minus 36. The Marlins' run differential, believe it or not, is plus 16. You have a game each of the next three nights, 7.05 first pitch, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. Starting for the Nats on Monday night is John Lester, who has just been abysmal lately. We talked about him a lot going into the All-Star break. John Lester in his last outing, 10-4 loss at the San Francisco Giants on July 10th. Eight runs, three earned in two and two-thirds innings. Lester, over 14 starts this season, has an ERA of 554, has a whip of 174, and Lester over his last four starts, 25 runs, 17 earned in 13 and a third innings. The Nats need length from their starters right now. Uh, I don't know how in any way you can truly expect it on Monday night from John Lester, but we shall see. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We'll talk Washington football team coming up next segment, but we must discuss our Wizards, who finally have a head coach. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, that team, our team, at last, has a head coach. The Wizards on Saturday afternoon announcing the hiring of Wes Unsell Jr. as the 25th head coach in franchise history. Four-year contract for ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski. Introductory press conference on Monday afternoon. Uh, I like the hire. I like the hire a lot. 
I said weeks ago that Wes Unseld Jr. was the guy who I wanted as the Wizards' next head coach, and they got him. And look, I advocated for Wes Unseld Jr., not because I profess to be like an expert on all NBA assistant coaches. The truth is we don't know much about most NBA assistant coaches in terms of what the assistants are actually responsible for, what they're known for, etc. But based on what I read and heard about Wes, he came off as exactly what the Wizards need. Someone who is smart, someone who is hardworking, someone who is detail-oriented, someone who is defensive-minded but also offensively intelligent, someone who is very good with players. You can't succeed in today's NBA if you don't relate well with and communicate well with players. And every indication is that West does those things. So let's start with the defense. This was my number one criteria for the Wizards' next head coach, someone who could get the Wizards to consistently play high-level defense. The two teams in the NBA Finals, each team top 10 in the NBA in defensive rating in the regular season. Defensive rating is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com. It's the best single shop stop in terms of just saying, okay, is this team good defensively or not? You look at defensive rating. The Phoenix Suns were sixth in the NBA in defensive rating during the regular season. The Milwaukee Bucks were ninth. It's very difficult to make a deep run in the NBA playoffs without being good defensively. The Wizards haven't been truly good defensively in years. That needs to change. Wes Unsell Jr. can change this. He is a defensive specialist. Wes was an assistant for the Denver Nuggets for six seasons, 2015-2016 through 2020-2021. He, in December 2020, was promoted to associate head coach for the Nuggets. Wes oversaw the Nuggets' defensive game plans, the Nuggets' rankings in defensive rating in each of the last three regular seasons. 2018-2019, 10th in the NBA. 2019-2020, 16th in the NBA. 2020-21, 11th in the NBA. Now look, those are not elite rankings, I'll grant you that, Uh, but those are pretty good in terms of two out of three years. 10th in 2018-2019, 11th in 2020-2021, And understand the context here. The Nuggets' top three players, Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr., are not known to be very good defensive players, and yet Wes got those guys to D up. This, to me, is so key. It's not like Wes had, you know, Michael Cooper and Bruce Bowen and Ben Wallace on the Nuggets. Wes had guys not known for being very good defenders, and yet Wes got those guys to play defense. 80% of defense, to me, is desire and coaching. Most players in the NBA can be good defensively if they truly want to be good defensively, and if their coaches command those players being good defensively. West knows how to get guys to play good defense. Scott Brooks never got the Wizards to be anything close to a consistently good defensive team. The Wizards' rankings in defensive rating in each of Brooks's five regular seasons as Wizards head coach, 2016-2017, 20th. 2017-2018, 15th. 2018-2019, 27th, 2019-2020, 29th, i.e. next to last in the NBA, 2020-2021, 20th. So the Wizards in four of Brooks's five regular seasons as Wizards head coach were 20th or worse in the 30-team NBA in defensive rating. That is unacceptable, okay? That has to change. Wes Unsell Jr., can help to change that. Wes is known for working well with players. This is huge. Uh, Someone who had worked with Wes said the following about Wes to Wizards insider Fred Katz of The Athletic DC in a piece that came out on July 9th. Quote, 
He wants to get input from the players. He wants to know how they feel like they would be successful and how he can carry it out within his system, which a lot of guys don't do. A lot of guys come in and like, hey, this is how we play our pick and roll defense. This is what we're going to do, and we got to do it every single time. And Wes is like, how can I put my player in the best place to succeed? And quote. Wes doesn't seem to be some egomaniac who demands everything be done his way. Wes doesn't seem to be someone who is obsessed with his system, and it has to be my system, and it can never deviate from my system. Wes seems like someone who welcomes input, who is adaptable, who, yes, has his principles, but can apply those principles in various ways depending on the skill sets of his players. That, to me, is what coaching is. You have some basic tenets that you go by, but within those tenets, You have the flexibility to adapt to the players who happen to be on your team. I also like this about the Wizards hiring Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach. He previously spent 13 seasons with the Wizards organization. Now, the fact that Wes Unsell Jr. was Wes Unsell's son doesn't move me that much. I mean, that's nice, but someone being the son of an all-time great for a franchise guarantees nothing, okay? Uh, see Bruce Allen. It means you're close. Yes. Hello, Brucifer. But what does move me is that Wes Unsell Jr. worked for the Wizards for years and thus has an understanding of what has gone wrong for our precious franchise. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you. Uh, our franchise, the Bullets slash Wizards, has not advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. I mean, think about that, man. 1979. There's a whole lot that has gone wrong with the Bullets slash Wizards. West should have a very strong grasp of that. The problems, the pitfalls, and also the potential. Uh, West's first stint with the Wizards was from 1997 to 2011. He was an assistant coach for the Wizards for six seasons, 2005-2006 through 2010 2011. So Wes Unsell Jr. worked with Gilbert Arenas. Wes Unsell Jr. worked with John Wall. Uh, Wes began his NBA career in 1997, just four days after graduating from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, He started off with the Wizards as a professional and college scout. He was promoted later to advanced scout. Wes also spent three seasons as an advanced scout for the Mystics, uh, 1998 to 2000. Spent one season serving as an assistant coach for the Mystics, that season being 1998. Additionally, Wes Sunsell Jr. comes to the Wizards well-recommended. Nuggets insider Mike Singer of the Denver Post on Friday reported that the Nuggets president of basketball operations, Tim Conley, had made numerous calls to the Wizards endorsing Wes for Wizards head coach. Now, the name Tim Conley should strike you as being familiar. Tim Conley spent years with the Bullets slash Wizards. He grew up in Baltimore, went to Catholic University. He began with the Bullets as an intern in 1996, was hired as assistant video coordinator in 1999, became a full-time scout for the Wizards in 2000, and then eventually became the Wizards director of player personnel. The Wizards in May 2019 reportedly tried to woo Conley from the Nuggets to run the Wizards basketball operations But he turned down the Wizards. Remember, in 2019, we had the Wizards finally parting with Ernie Grunfeld. And then it was like, well, who's next? And at first, the Wizards wanted Tim Conley. And then you had the reporting of the Wizards wanting Masai Ujiri of the Toronto Raptors. And then ultimately, right, the Wizards ended up promoting Tommy Shepard 
the general manager. But on May 17th, 2019, we had multiple reports that the Wizards had made an official offer to Conley to be their president of basketball operations. And then on May 20th, 2019, multiple reports that Conley had decided to remain with the Nuggets. But my point here is that the Wizards value the opinion of Tim Conley, and they should. Tim Conley's done a really good job with the Nuggets, and Conley was big on Wes Unsell Jr. becoming an NBA head coach. One more thing to like about the Wizards hiring Wes Unsell Jr. as their head coach. The dude has paid his dues. I'm always a fan of people like this. Wes Unsell Jr. toiled as an NBA assistant coach for four teams over 16 seasons. This guy was not handed anything in terms of a head coaching opportunity. He earned this. Wes, like I said, was an assistant coach for the Wizards for six seasons, 2005-2006 through 2010-2011. He was an assistant coach for the Golden State Warriors for one season, 2011-2012. He was an assistant coach for the Orlando Magic for three seasons, 2012-2013 to 2014-2015. He was fired in February 2015. And he was an assistant coach for the Denver Nuggets for six seasons, 2015-2016 through 2020-2021. When it comes to the process by which the Wizards hired Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach, uh, the search ultimately was lengthy, the search ultimately was vast, and the search seemingly focused only on NBA assistant coaches. It really is interesting looking back on all this. So it was on June 16th that the Wizards announced that they had parted ways with head coach Scott Brooks. It wasn't until July 17th that the Wizards announced the hiring of Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach. So the entire process took more than a month. The Wizards took their time with this thing, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's good to take your time. I think it's good to talk to a lot of people, and the Wizards sure did that. Uh, The Wizards, per various reports, interviewed or had interest in at least 11 candidates during the team's head coaching search. You had, of course, Wes Unsell Jr., You had Philadelphia 76ers assistant coach Sam Cassell. You had Los Angeles Clippers assistant coach Chauncey Billups, who ended up becoming the head coach of the Portland Trailblazers. You had Boston Celtics assistant coach Scott Morrison. You had Dallas Mavericks assistant coach Jamal Mosley, who ended up becoming the head coach of the Orlando Magic. You had Chicago Bulls assistant coach Chris Fleming. You had Charlotte Hornets assistant coach Ronald Norred, who ended up being hired by the Indiana Pacers as an assistant coach. You had Miami Heat assistant coach Chris Quinn. You had Phoenix Suns assistant coach Willie Green, who reportedly is becoming the New Orleans Pelicans head coach. And you had the two Milwaukee Bucks assistant coaches, Darvin Ham, who played for the Wizards in the 1997-98 season, and Charles Lee, who went to Quince Orchard High School in Gaithersburg, Maryland. At least 11 candidates. I mean, these are just the people who were reported. Okay, how about if there were any guys or girls who weren't reported here? 11 candidates at least, all of whom were assistant coaches. That to me is so interesting, right? No head coaching retreads, all up and comers. I like that. I respect that, you know? Find the next big thing as opposed to hiring a previously big thing. June 23rd, we had multiple reports that the Wizards were focusing their head coaching search on NBA assistant coaches. So this certainly seemed to be the philosophy by which Tommy Shepard abided throughout this whole thing of, we're not getting some guy who's been around for years. We're trying to find someone who's on the come, who's about to bust out. You know, again, find the next big thing, not the previously big thing. 
Uh, the finalist for the job for the record ended up being, according to ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski, Wes Unsell Jr. and Darvin Ham. Uh, Woj also noted that Charles Lee emerged as a finalist. One more thing. Uh, to this idea that Wes Unsell Jr. was hired as Wizards head coach because he is Wes Unsell Jr., the son of Wes Unsell. Uh, look, only Ted Leonsis and Tommy Shepard can answer truly if who Wes Unsell Jr.'s dad was had anything to do with Wes Unsell Jr. being hired as Wizards head coach. I did find it notable that the Wizards in their press release announcing the hiring said, quote, he is the son of franchise legend slash Hall of Famer Wes Unsell Sr., the greatest player in franchise history and one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history, end quote. I mean, the Wizards in their press release point blank said, Wes Unseld Sr. is the greatest player in the history of our franchise. However, I mean, understand how long it has been since Wes Unseld Sr. has been with the Bullet slash Wizards in a major capacity. Like, if in fact hiring Wes Unseld Jr. was in large part about him being Wes Unsell Jr. Think about how ridiculous it is. I mean, first of all, you should never hire anyone just because of who their daddy is. But second of all, Wes Unsell Sr. hasn't been a major force for the Bullet Slash Wizards in decades at this point. Like, you have to be of a certain age to even truly understand who Wes Unsell Sr. was. Like, if you're going to hire Wes Unsell Jr. for nostalgia reasons, you're catering to an increasingly small portion of your fan base. Wes Unseld Sr., who, of course, died last year. He died in June 2020 at the age of 74. He played for the Bullets from 1968-69 through 1980-81. So you have to be at least, say, 45, and I'm being conservative in saying that, to have any memory of Wes Unseld Sr. as a player for the Bullets. I mean, again, his last season was the 1980-81 season. Additionally, Wes Unseld Sr.'s time as Bullets head coach, that was from January 1988 to April 1994. He served as an executive for the franchise for years, including being the general manager from May 1996 to June 2003. I mean, listen to how long ago these dates are. And by the way, when it comes to Wes as Bullets head coach and Wes as Bullets slash Wizards general manager. I mean, all due respect to Wes Unseld Sr., again, one of the legendary faces of the franchise, but those were not glory years, okay? And it's not all Wes's fault. Trust me on that one. But, you know, it's Wes's tenure as head coach was not some gangbusters run. Wes's tenure as general manager was not some gangbusters run. The reason that Wes Unseld Sr. is so beloved, truly, is what he was as a player. He is an all-time great big man in the NBA. He was a huge part of the Bullets in the 1970s when the team made the NBA Finals incredibly four times. I mean, that sounds like fiction with the way the franchise has gone over the last 40 years. But yeah, in the decade of the 1970s, the Bullets made the NBA Finals four times. But that's a very long time ago. I think it'd be awfully dumb to just have hired Wes Unsell Jr. because of who his daddy was. And so I don't think that who his daddy was had much to do with him getting this job. I, I think it's icing on the cake. I think it's the cherry on top of the sundae, but it's not the reason. The Wizards and Wes Unsell Jr., I believe, have someone who is smart, who is diligent, who is forward-thinking, who is adaptable, and who can get this team, hopefully, finally, to playing 
high-level defense. The damn Washington Wizards. Exactly. All right, we arrive now at the portion of the show in which we talk Washington football team. This week is the final week of the month-and-a-half-long break between off-season practices and training camp. That went by fast, didn't it? I feel like this break always does go by fast. Anyway, Washington football team training camp will begin on Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond. Next segment, we get back to the position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp by talking linebacker. But before that, I do want to address something that came out on Friday uh, after the release of that day's installment of this podcast. So we on Friday had multiple reports that Washington still had a COVID-19 vaccination rate of less than 50%. In fact, the Associated Press reported that Washington and the Indianapolis Colts had the two lowest COVID-19 vaccination rates in the NFL. To put this in proper context, Ron Rivera at his post-minicamp practice press conference on June 9th said that all of Washington's coaches and employees had been vaccinated for COVID-19, but also that Washington was nearing just a 50% COVID-19 vaccination rate for players. So on June 9th, Washington was nearing a 50% COVID-19 vaccination rate for players. And as of this past Friday, July 16th, Washington still was not at a 50% COVID-19 vaccination rate for players. More than a month later, still not at a 50% COVID-19 vaccination rate for players. It may be that not a single additional player got vaccinated for COVID-19 from June 9th to July 16th. And if vaccine shots were administered to players, the number of vaccine shots uh, clearly wasn't sky high. I mentioned the date of June 9th. That also was the day on which Montez Sweat at his post-minicamp practice press conference, revealed himself to have been among those players who had not been vaccinated for COVID-19, and he came out as being against getting vaccinated for COVID-19. What's now as clear as can be is that Montez Sweat, in terms of players on the Washington football team, far from alone regarding how he feels about the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, as I have said, I am not a vax shamer, I am not a believer in vaccine-shaming people, just like I was never a big fan of mask-shaming people. We need less judgment in the world, not more, especially for something that has been as confusing and unique as COVID-19. The media coverage of COVID-19 has been all over the map. The media coverage has been politically biased. I do very much believe that, and I mean that on both sides. Uh, The handling of the COVID-19 pandemic has been very political. Again, I mean that on both sides, okay? There's no doubt in my mind about these things. And so it's no wonder that there's confusion about what is real and what is fake news when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, I myself, as I have said, have gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. The data on vaccinations to me is clear. They work, they are safe, but I recognize that not everyone feels the way that I do. And by the way, the people who don't feel the way that I do They're not like all affiliated with one political ideology. The population of people who haven't gotten vaccinated for COVID-19 comes from both the Republican and Democratic parties, comes from all age groups, comes from all races. 
the framing of people not getting vaccinated for COVID-19 as, uh, you know, this this is just a bunch of angry whiteys who watch Tucker Carlson who haven't gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. Uh, actually, that's not true, okay? Uh, that's not the case. Even though I see this frame that way all of the time, like most things in life, this is complicated. Like most things in life, you can't just paint an entire group of people with a broad brush. There are many walks of life who make up the people who have not yet gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. You know, I've seen people say that Jack Del Rio is an anti-COVID-19 vaxxer. And that may be why so many Washington players haven't gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. I mean, that, that to me, that to me is so unfair. Just because Jack Del Rio pretty clearly didn't vote for Joe Biden, all of a sudden Jack is an anti-vaxxer and is spreading that to others. I mean, come on. All right. And, and Ron on June 9th said that all of Washington's coaches and employees had been vaccinated for COVID-19. That would include Jack Del Rio, would it not? And look, I have no idea what Jack's stance is on the COVID-19 vaccines, nor do I really care, to be honest with you. But can we please stop trying to politicize everything? I mean, I know we have to politicize like 95% of things out there. Can, can there be like a 5% that just doesn't get politicized? Anyway, two other major points that I want to make with Washington still having this very low COVID-19 vaccination rate for players. So getting vaccinated for COVID-19 is as much about preventing the virus from mutating as about protecting yourself or others. Chances are any unvaccinated Washington player who gets COVID-19 will be just fine. I mean, the data on healthy people in their 20s and 30s could not be clearer. These people do exceptionally well with COVID-19. At this point, younger and healthy people getting vaccinated for COVID-19 isn't so much about protecting themselves or even necessarily others, because many, if not most others who are vulnerable to COVID-19 have gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. The biggest thing with getting vaccinated, and this to me does not get talked about nearly enough, is preventing virus mutation, preventing the virus from continuing to live on from person to person even if those persons are asymptomatic and allowing the virus to potentially take on new and deadlier forms. That's what getting vaccinated is about as much as anything at this point. And then the last major point is there are major competitive advantages for an NFL team that has a high COVID-19 vaccination rate. Like put aside how you feel about the vaccines, put aside how you feel about COVID-19, just from purely a football standpoint, there are major competitive advantages if your team has a high vaccination rate for COVID-19 among players. So you start with the relaxing of protocols. NFL owners and the NFL Players Association on May 26 agreed to relax COVID-19 protocols for fully vaccinated players and staff. The relaxed protocols include fully vaccinated players and staff members not being subjected to daily testing for COVID-19. There are no mask requirements for fully vaccinated players and staff members. There is no mandatory quarantining for fully vaccinated players and staff members if exposed to a COVID-19 positive person. There are no travel restrictions for fully vaccinated players and staff members if exposed to a COVID-19 positive person. If you haven't been fully vaccinated for COVID-19 and you are exposed to a COVID-19 positive person, you have to deal with a mandatory quarantine. You have to deal with mandatory travel restrictions. These are competitive disadvantages. Also, we on June 16th had multiple reports of updated COVID-19 protocols for NFL training camps and for the preseason 
this year. The gist of the updated protocols, vaccinated players have things much easier and better than non-vaccinated players. I mean, listen to some of these things. Fully vaccinated individuals exposed to a COVID-19 positive individual won't be labeled as high-risk close contacts and thus be subjected to mandatory five-day isolations, the likes of which kept many players and coaches out of games in the 2020 season. NFL players who aren't fully vaccinated will be banned from nightclubs, bars, house parties, concerts, etc., with the NFL and clubs allowed to issue fines of a game check up to $50,000 for a first offense and more thereafter for violating protocol. Again, all of these things represent competitive advantages for teams with high vaccination rates for COVID-19. Heck, what about just the idea of a player testing positive for COVID-19 during the regular season and missing a game or more than just a game? I mean, could you imagine Montez Sweat doesn't get vaccinated for COVID-19, ends up testing positive for COVID-19, and then ends up missing a game or two because he tested positive for COVID-19. And yes, getting vaccinated for COVID-19 does not guarantee you not getting COVID-19. We know this. Uh, The Nationals pitcher, Eric Fetty, he got COVID-19 despite getting vaccinated for COVID-19. But getting vaccinated for COVID-19 does lessen the likelihood of you getting COVID-19 and does lessen the severity of COVID-19 Should you get it? Again, major competitive advantages for teams with high vaccination rates for COVID-19. Look, ultimately, you can't nor shouldn't make people get vaccinated for COVID-19. I don't believe that you should shame people into getting vaccinated for COVID-19. People should do what they're comfortable with, but they also should know the facts. Although, like I said, the facts with everything with COVID-19 have been confusing because of the politicizing of the whole thing. But from purely a football perspective, Washington having a low vaccination rate for COVID-19 for players is bad for the team and could potentially cost Washington a win or wins in the upcoming season. Like you have to be open to this from purely a football standpoint. This is not a good development that Washington players still, at least as of Friday, had a COVID-19 vaccination rate of less than 50%. All right, let's get to it. Our countdown to Washington football team training camp, because remember, it is the final countdown. It's the final countdown. Yes, that's right. It is the final countdown. Washington football team training camp will begin on Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond. will take place in Richmond through July 31st, then we'll move to the team facility in Ashburn. I am giving to you a position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp. We go in-depth on one position group each show. The three biggest questions for the position group for training camp, excluding injury, excluding does everyone stay healthy? That's a question for every position group. And these are questions for training camp, questions to which we'll have answers by the end of training camp. Not questions for the upcoming season, questions for camp. Last Monday's show, episode 100, I talked defensive line. Last Wednesday's show, episode 101, I talked tight end. Last Friday's show, episode 102, I talked offensive line. And now, on this episode 103, we talk linebacker, the position for which Washington spent its first round pick in the 2021 NFL draft. And so, question number one for the Washington football team at linebacker in training camp Does Jamin Davis appear to be legit? 
We won't have the complete answer to this question until the regular season, but we certainly can get a sense in camp of how Jamin Davis is doing. Washington, with the number 19 pick in the first round of the 2021 draft, took Jamin Davis, a linebacker, out of Kentucky. You have heard me talk about how Washington took a number of athletic freaks in the 2021 draft. That trend started with Jamin Davis, who is a long-armed athletic freak. Davis was a meteoric riser in the 2021 pre-draft process. He, at the Kentucky Pro Day, ran a 4-3-7-40. Now, understand that the 40-yard dash times at Pro Days in the 2021 pre-draft process varied due to different people taking the times. There was no 2021 NFL scouting combine due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So all you had to go by in terms of 40 times were what guys did at Pro Days. But regarding Jamin Davis having run this 4-3-7-40 at the Kentucky Pro Day, again, keep that time in mind, 4-3-7. Deshaun Jackson at the 2008 NFL Scouting Combine ran a 4-3-5-40. Jamin Davis's 40, again, was 4-3-7. Jamin Davis ran a 40 that was nearly as fast as Deshaun Jackson's. I mean, think about that. Jackpot Jackson all the way. Yeah, Jackpot Jackson. Jamin Davis at Kentucky was a tackling machine. He, in his 2020 redshirt junior season for Kentucky, ranked number four in the SEC and number 20 in the FBS in tackles per game at 10.2. Jamin Davis at Kentucky was good against the run. Davis in his 2020 redshirt junior season for Kentucky recorded a run defense grade for pro football focus of 87.5, ranking number four among all qualified off-ball linebackers on Power 5 conference teams. Jamin Davis has been durable. Uh, Davis over his three seasons of playing at Kentucky, 2018 through 2020, redshirted in 2017, played in 36 of a possible 37 games. The only game that he missed a 63-3 loss at Alabama this past November 21st. And Davis missed that game due to COVID-19 protocol. So the lone game that he missed over the last three years had to do with COVID-19. And the game that he missed saw Kentucky get obliterated. Again, the final was 63-3 at the Crimson Tide of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And Jamin Davis certainly seems to be a guy who fits the Ron Rivera culture reset perfectly. Now, you always have to be careful with stuff like this because when it comes to, well, who players are as people, there's a lot that we don't know. But every indication is that Jamin Davis is a hard worker and is a disciplined person. He comes from a military family. Both of his parents are Army veterans. Davis has this philosophy by which he lives, quote, you can't have a million-dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic, end quote, Davis's inside linebackers coach at Kentucky, John Sumrall, raves about Davis. I had John Sumrall on as a guest on this podcast. You can find our conversation in episode 55. Some really good stuff from Coach Sumrall on Jamin Davis. So there is a ton to like about Jamin Davis. The biggest concern is that he was only a starter at Kentucky for one season, that 2020 redshirt junior season. So the body of work isn't exactly a mile long, but that to me is far from a deal breaker. How does Jamin Davis look in training camp? Does he come off as the three down stud linebacker he was drafted to be? Question number two for the Washington football team at linebacker in training camp. 
Is John Bostic a surprise cut? So this has come up. Might John Bostic end up being cut? We have seen that Ron Rivera is not shy about releasing respected veterans. See Adrian Peterson. See Alex Smith. See Morgan Moses. The thinking behind Ron potentially cutting Bostic is threefold. One, Ron was publicly critical of the linebackers last season. Bostic was a big part of that, although he was better as the season went on. Two, Washington only regularly played two linebackers last season, Bostic and Cole Holcomb. Washington, like most NFL teams, has at least five defensive backs on the field a ton. And so with Washington now having Holcomb and Jamin Davis, and with potentially Kalik Hudson on the rise, is Bostic expendable? And three, Bostic has a salary cap hit for this coming season of $3.565 million. That's not some gargantuan number, but that's also not nothing. And yes, Washington has plenty of cap space, but remember, cap space carries over. So if you can save some, you should save some. The 2021 season will be John Bostic's age 30 season. He, in the 2020 regular season, played in all 16 games for Washington, finished number two on Washington in defensive snaps at 92.44%. Corner Ronald Darby was number one on the team in defensive snaps. Bostic was number two. I do think that Ron and Jack Del Rio see Bostic as a professional and dependable player, but there's no way that Ron and Jack see Bostic as having the upside that Davis, Holcomb, and even maybe Hudson possess. Bostic, to me, needs to have a strong camp. Question number three for the Washington football team at linebacker in training camp. Does Kalik Hudson take a major step forward? So every year, there are players who end up being pleasant surprises. Guys who weren't talked up a bunch going into the season, but guys who end up excelling in the season. Kalik Hudson, to me, feels like a candidate to be one of those guys for Washington in 2021. Washington took Hudson in the fifth round of the 2020 NFL Draft out of Michigan. It is true that he barely played on defense last season. Hudson in the 2020 regular season played in 16 games, but on just 4.88% of Washington's defensive snaps. Although Hudson in the 2020 regular season did lead Washington in special team snaps at 81.96%. So he already brings value. And Kalik Hudson offers, wait for it, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Do you remember all of the hype for Isaiah Simmons going into the 2020 NFL draft off the hybrid linebacker safety corner role that he served for Clemson? Well, Hudson was Isaiah Simmons-like for Michigan in 2019 in that Hudson played all over the field. For Pro Football Focus, Hudson in 2019 for Michigan had 371 snaps as a box safety, 210 snaps as a slot corner, 200 snaps as a defensive lineman, 52 snaps as a free safety, and 20 snaps as an outside corner. That right there is the epitome of position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Kalik Hudson in 2019 for Michigan started all 13 games at the Viper position which is a hybrid safety linebacker role. Ron loves guys who offer position flex. Kalik Hudson very much offers 
position flex. Keep this in mind too. Washington took Hudson with the 162nd overall pick in the 2020 draft. The pick that was acquired in March 2020 from the Seattle Seahawks for corner Quinton Dunbar. Kalik Hudson is who Washington got for Quinton Dunbar, who, remember, wanted a contract extension, but did not get a contract extension from Ron Rivera. Don Ron shut down that talk real quick. As Ron said, Quinton Dunbar, old Dunny, he was looking for something that Washington wasn't prepared to give. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Yes, he was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. One of my favorite lines from Don Ron and his tenure so far as Washington head coach. And by the way, the oft-injured Quinton Dunbar for the Seahawks in the 2020 regular season, uh, he played in just six games. And before we call it a show on this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, we must talk Orioles as they had a victorious first series after the All-Star break, winning two or three games at the Kansas City Royals. It was a battle of two of the worst teams in the majors, and uh, the O's sucked the least. A 9-2 loss on Friday night, but then an 8-4 win on Saturday night and a 5-0 win on Sunday afternoon. Yes, a shutout win for the O's. Their pitching staff actually threw a shutout, and guess who started the game? Matt Harvey. Who says that he can't pitch anymore? Who says that he's washed up? Joe Angel, give it to me. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, sir. Look, I've talked about the true usefulness of Matt Harvey to the O's this season as him being a potential trade ship. The MLB trade deadline is on July 30th. Maybe, just maybe, there is still hope. Who knows? Uh, But he was great on Sunday afternoon, albeit against a bad Royals team. Harvey, six scoreless innings. That's incredible. Given the season he's had, six scoreless innings. Best start of the season for him. He gave up just three hits, all of which were singles. He issued just one walk. He did issue a hit by pitch. He did have just two strikeouts. But come on. I mean, what did you want from the guy? He came into the game with an ERA of 770 over 18 starts this season. He came into the game with a whip of 176 over 18 starts this season. And he came into the game as having allowed 51 earned runs in 41 innings over his previous 11 starts. It remains a miracle that he's still on the ball club, but he is. He's thrown out there every five games. And you know what? At least on Sunday afternoon, the guy pitched a gem. I mean, six scoreless innings. I got to salute old Matt Harvey. He was good. Full credit to him. Remember, he wasn't always atrocious this season. This gets forgotten, but Matt Harvey over his first seven starts of the season had an ERA of 360. Now, a lot of that was smoke and mirrors, but the run prevention was there. Now, the Orioles starting pitching in the other two games in the series was not good. Jorge Lopez struggled again. Uh, but then actually gave us a gut-wrenching reveal. Uh, you know, we talked about all of the off-the-field stuff with the Nationals over the weekend. How about what went down with Jorge Lopez? So first of all, 8-4 win at the Royals on Saturday night. Lopez was the Orioles' starting pitcher. He gave up four runs in four and two-thirds innings as he continues to struggle when facing lineups for third times. He allowed one run in four innings, so you love that. But then in the bottom of the fifth, He gave up three runs on three singles, a walk, a run-scoring wild pitch, and a run-scoring sack fly, and got just two outs. So Lopez now over 19 starts this season, an ERA of 604 
a whip of 163. So the O's earlier on Saturday reinstated Lopez from the bereavement list. Lopez, during his postgame press conference on Saturday night, revealed that he had gone on the bereavement list due to his son having received a bone marrow transplant as his son was undergoing chemotherapy. My God. I mean, what a terrible situation. Obviously, Lopez has not had a good season. Uh, Perhaps now we know a big part of the reason why, but just awful. I mean, your heart breaks for the kid, for Jorge, for the family. Clearly, best wishes to them. And then we had Keegan Aiken as the Orioles starting pitcher in the 9-2 loss at the Royals on Friday night. And he struggled again. Six runs in three innings. He gave up eight hits, four doubles, and four singles. He issued three walks, a balk, and a wild pitch. He had just two strikeouts. How about this? Of Aiken's 74 pitches, just eight were called strikes. Eight. That's it. Eight pitches out of 74 pitches were called strikes. So Aiken now, over his last seven games, has allowed 36 earned runs in 28 and a third innings. And Aiken, over 13 games this season, including eight starts, has an ERA of 8-19 and a whip of 180. Uh, Not good, as we say. When it comes to Orioles position players, Ramon Urias was the Orioles starting shortstop in all three games in the series, and he was good over the final two games. 8-4 win at the Royals on Saturday night, two RBI singles and a walk, the 5-0 win at the Royals on Sunday afternoon. Urias, a two-out first pitch, two-run single in the top of the third, and another single. Uh, The O selected Urias off waivers from the St. Louis Cardinals in February 2020. Austin Hayes had a nice game on Sunday afternoon. He was the Orioles starting right fielder and number two batter, had a double and a single. Cedric Mullins had a good game in the 8-4 win at the Royals on Saturday night. Starting center fielder and number one batter, he had two doubles in that game. And Trey Mancini was good in that Saturday night win. Starting first baseman, number two batter, he had a triple and a single. So the O's now an American League worst 30 and 62. As yes, the O's have gotten to the 30 win plateau this season. Next up for the O's, a three game series at the Tampa Bay Rays, game one, Monday night at 7 10. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Tuesday's show, we continue with our position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading in a training camp. We will react to Monday afternoon's introductory press conference for Wes Unsell Jr. as Wizards head coach. And who knows what chaos with the Nationals that we'll have to get into. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I love this city. Yeah, you know, the city's my home.